I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 66. Uh, I have nothing to say off the top, uh, except I did, I did post a new sermon uh, on the website, so you can, you can seek that out. And then uh, I, I've posted this a couple places, uh, but in case you didn't notice it, uh, More Than One Lesson was recently reviewed over at Bill's Movie Emporium. Uh, it was a very positive and yet also a very honest review. He talked about some of the things that he didn't like about the show. Um, but nonetheless, he was he was very uh, positive, and he is a uh, uh, not a Christian, so it 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 means something to me when non Christians actually enjoy the show and, and state that they get something out of it. So, uh, I wanted to also thank everybody for uh, filling out the survey over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I might be posting another one uh, in the next uh, few weeks, but I'll let you know when that happens. Uh, and it was very it was very helpful. It was very interesting to look at these statistics because those of you who took it, you know that it was about demographics, and so uh, I'm able to figure out who you are. Uh, and because I had a very clear idea of who you are, and in some cases I'm right, and in some cases I am not. So, uh, but it was very it was very exciting. And so thanks uh, to everybody for for participating in that. So uh, I did want to welcome back my co-host. He was gone for an episode because he was working. Uh, Josh, welcome back. Thank you. It's glad to be back. It's good to be back, and I'm glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, for a moment there, you sound like Buffalo Bill from uh, Silence of Lambs. <laughs> it's glad to be back. It's glad to be back. Um, but, uh, so you know, let's just, for the rest of this episode, let's just both do Buffalo Bill. With everything we say. That'd be the best. I know. So the movie we're going to talk about is Take Shelter. Everybody uh, get ready. <laughs> you uh, better take shelter. <laughs> it reads the Bible verse, Josh. So, um, okay. Well, that was delightful, and I might cut it out. I won't. So, uh, so we won't go into a lot of detail about the, uh, the set that you are working on, because that is uh, an ongoing thing, and so it's not wrapped up tight yet. It is. Hopefully we'll be finished up soon, and maybe when it is uh, all finished up and ready to come out, I guess it's possible it's even something we could talk about on the show, but we'll see. Watch out. You never know. You never know. I agree with you. I, I agree with you. Well, I'm quite flattered. All right. That's episode 66, everyone. Thanks a lot. I, I feel like we've got nowhere else to go but uh, up. So, uh, okay. So, moving on. This episode is going to be about one of my favorite movies from last year. It's called Take Shelter. And before we get uh, into the film itself, uh, I want to sort of talk very briefly about what the theme that we will be discussing today is going to be. Um, oddly enough, given the nature of what Take Shelter is... 
Uh, I've heard people refer to it as being a, a sort of modern-day Noah's Ark, which is if somebody is getting messages from God about the uh, the end of the world or something like that, that they will look quite crazy. Um, or it's just, you know, about ment- mental illness. Uh, there's arguments to be made that that is what the movie is about, but that is not what I got out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got out of it one of the most interesting and truest and most encouraging depictions of marriage in film or on television in the, la- in the last decade. Uh, I found it to be incredibly encouraging. And so, uh, so what we're going to talk about is... Marriage, and we haven't talked about that since we discussed fireproof. And Josh, I know in your mind there is no better of marriage film than fireproof. I can't think of one. I mean, I can't think of another one that has a book that came out with it to prove absolutely why it's important. And as I've said before, uh, fireproof has some interesting things to say, but they're all in the book, and so you do not need to slosh through two hours of bad movie to get there. You can just get the book, and it's much more. Uh, much more upfront about what it is doing, and you don't have to worry about uh, bad performances or or uh, bad writing or anything like or, that. Or abandon. You don't have to abandon logic. Exactly. You can just uh, and and quite frankly, uh, given uh, what we're going to be discussing today, the Love Dare, which was the companion book to go with Fireproof, uh, it is not a bad read uh, for those of you that are married. Um, it can give you some good ideas of how to be a better spouse to your spouse. So um, so we're going to be talking about marriage and specifically some of the, you know, some of the ups and downs of marriage because it is not all roses, uh, but it's not as crappy as... Uh, it's not all thorns either. Watch out. It's, it's the whole thing. It's not all petals, but it's not all thorns. It's the whole rose. Every rose has its thorns. I heard that somewhere. It was a great poet. <laughs> Who was that? I don't know. I'm going to just blame it on the 80s. Fair, fair enough. Okay. So, um, yeah, and I actually wanted to uh, kick, kick off maybe the theme of, uh, of today's episode with a quote from Tim Keller. I will tell you right now, I will be quoting a lot from Tim Keller. It's not because I think he's the only person that has written well about the subject, but as it happens, uh, I he and his wife wrote a book about marriage recently, and I have read it recently. So it is very, uh, it's very much in the forefront of my brain. Uh, and also, as I've said before, I just I like the way Keller. Uh, I like the way he phrases things. It really speaks to me. It is a combination of intellect uh, with emotion. Um, he's very plain spoken, but also uh, has a has a way with words that I like. So, uh, and I will be recommending uh, other books that you can read. Uh, and I've rec- I've recommended one already, which is the Love Dare. So, uh, so I'll start start with this quote, and then we will move on into the discussion of Take Shelter. Marriage is glorious but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats, and exhausting victories. Uh, I think that's a really, really good description of what marriage is. Um, I like that it's a combination of encouraging and discouraging, and... uh, you know how frustrating it can be with to deal with flawed people and yet how rewarding it can be at the same time so take shelter one of my favorite movies of last year it was written and directed by jeff nichols who previously had made a film called shotgun stories starring among others 
friend of the show, Barlow Jacobs. So you can go back and listen to his uh, two-parter episode and find out more about him, though I don't think we talk much about shotgun stories. Uh, so the story is, is actually pretty pretty simple. Uh, a This family in Ohio, a working-class family, they're just going along, living their lives, and then the, the father and husband of the family named Curtis, played by Michael Shannon, who also appeared in Shotgun Stories, he suddenly starts to have these bad dreams, but they're, they're more than dreams. They seem to really resonate with him in his waking life. Uh, and they're enough that he's, he's having trouble sleeping, he's feeling ill, like they're starting to affect him outside of, mm-hmm. his, uh, outside of his waking life. Yeah, and it starts to, and, and there is a theme throughout the dreams of storms and people acting strange and brutal, and, uh, and it starts to really, uh, it stays in, in his mind, like the first dream, his dog attacks him and bites his arm, and uh, the rest of the day, he, he feels like his arm physically hurts, mm-hmm. uh, even though he does recognize that it was just a dream. But there is this thing lingering in the back of his mind, especially as he has more and more dreams, that, that maybe there's something more. Maybe this is, maybe they are, for lack of a better term, premonitions. And so you find out more about his history. You find that his mother uh, is in a home. Uh, and has been in a home for 25 years because she has she is a paranoid schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. So of course, with that in his mind, he yeah. knows full well. Like, okay, well, if I'm starting to think that these are premonitions, I might be going crazy. Yeah. So he, among uh, among other people around him, is well aware of the fact that he might just be crazy. Like, right. That's kind of where other some other people will jump to right away. But he's. It's not so much just him against the world insisting that he's he's he knows something that they all don't though he has moments of that a lot of the time he's he has a lot of self-doubt. Right. And that reason. And that already speaks to something that I like about the film which is uh, the dual the duality of his actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll talk more about that in a moment. Um but yeah, he uh in his backyard there is a an old you know uh dirty and ill-repaired storm shelter, a tornado shelter. And he starts to feel like he should start developing that a little bit. Like, he keeps dreaming of storms, and he keeps thinking something's going to happen, so he starts to clean it up a little bit, and then he starts to expand it. He, uh, he's like I said, he's a working-class guy. I don't totally know what it is he does for a living, but it involves, uh, you know, uh, tractors and that sort of thing. Construction. And he borrows equipment from work so that he can uh, dig further into uh, the earth and uh, and make the shelter even larger. He actually looks up, he gets gas masks and put them, puts them in there. He s- stores up uh, canned goods and stuff. So he really puts a lot into it and starts missing work as a result. And it starts to really worry his wife. It might remind you of the Y2K shelters if you uh, if you remember that there were people who did who really did stuff like that. Yeah, that was uh, a, that was such a big deal. Yeah, it's weird to think about that there are people who don't even remember that who are now too young to even remember how big a deal that was. Yeah, like if you even said Y2K, they'd be like, I don't know what that is. Mm. It's just like, oh, it's the year two thousand. Oh, you mean that thing from twelve years ago? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Um, but yeah, his wife is played by Jessica Chastain, and she 
you know, wants to be supportive of her husband, but she also is fascinated by what it is. Not fascinated. She's worried, but she's intrigued by what it is he is doing. Uh, but he's not letting her in. He's not telling her about his dreams. He just kind of wants to go this alone. And so in doing so, she feels pretty alone herself. So, uh, so I won't go into a lot of, uh, how the film ends, uh, right away. Um, I will be adopting a spoiler mentality. So if you have not seen take shelter, maybe go and watch it and then come back to this episode because I do want to talk about the end. Um, Okay, so that's the basic story of Take Shelter. Uh, I've already said it was one of my favorite movies of last year. I think it came in at number three behind Moneyball and Tree of Life, which we have already discussed on the show. Uh, Josh, what do you think of Take Shelter? Enough of of me. Enough of you is right. People are saying, Tyler, we get it. Stop talking. What does Josh have to say? Well, I'll tell you what I have to say. I hated this movie. No, oh my kidding. gosh, that's okay. a lie. I I like this movie a lot. Um, I don't. I'm I'm usually not as as uh, diligent about doing rankings or whatever. But I I'd say it was in certainly one of my top five movies of the year. Uh, I think my favorite is still Tree of Life, but it's close to that. Both of which star Jessica Chastain, actually, which is yeah. interesting. But um, yeah, it's it's a film that's that's both. Uh, it it has a deep um a lot of deep meaning to it um so that there's a lot of like interesting emotional and psychological themes and there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface without it being too uh too expositional about it all and at the same time it's just it's it's visually striking it's got a lot mm-hmm. happening um just there's just a lot to look at uh, which is amazing considering it's, you know, a small family, you know, three-person family in rural Ohio, which mm-hmm. uh, could, can be a very boring place. Um, not saying it always is. Yeah, you've got, sure. got Cleveland, which rocks, apparently. I've heard and, that. And uh, there's, there's Cincinnati as well. So there's, there's some, you know, some cool stuff going on. Or maybe you like just rural country. That's fine for some mm-hmm. people. It's hey, it's, you know, it's no Dayton, Tennessee. I'll it's, tell you that. It's certainly not. It's too, no Nixon, Missouri. Too many people for it to be Dayton, Tennessee. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it manages to just be very visually striking, and um, uh, Jeff Nichols has a way of of really building tension, and he draws you into the story without knowing where he's going. Really, like I, I didn't know very much at all about the about the film going into it. I think I hadn't even seen the trailer. Hmm. And I had no idea what was going to happen. Like it really leaves you hanging and and leaves you wondering about about him for a great deal of the film. You're like is is he going to turn out to be some kind of prophet? Is he going to turn out to be totally crazy? Is it going to be some other combination of the two? Like what is it really going to be? And um with a film that sets itself up that way, I think it has it has the potential to just to just fall or to mm-hmm. turn into a movie where they've got to come up with a weird explanation at the end. Um, kind of like that. That's how I felt about Super Eight. I felt like Super Eight was a film that had a lot of kind of sus- uh, suspenseful, interesting questions, sort of building up towards it, and then when it came to the ending, 
for me, I was like, okay, that's, I guess that's the explanation. I don't care so much about that now. Yeah. Um, but this, this is a film that, I guess it never really shows all of its cards, but it, it gives you enough to have a, a invigorating ending, I think. And yeah, to put all the pieces together. Yeah, this is what I'm about to say is going to sound really, really pretentious and maybe even a little reaching, and I apologize in advance, but this is the only way I can think of to phrase it. Uh, okay. The <laughs> film You've is, got me on the edge of my seat. The film is structured maybe purposefully. Maybe Jeff Nichols even thought in the, along these lines. I don't know. Uh, it's structured like a storm that is slowly gathering, and you don't notice it right away. You're just going about your business, and then it starts to get, oh, the clouds are starting to gather. Oh, it's starting to rain a little bit. Oh, it's it's getting much worse, you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, It happens, and you don't even really notice it. Like, I've I've had that happen, especially when I lived in, like, southern Missouri or or Denver in the summer. Uh, It'd be super sunny, and then you'd suddenly realize, oh, it's, it's suddenly dark. But if it, but it's not so suddenly. It actually actually happens surprisingly gradually. Uh, but before you know it, it actually is dark, and then it starts raining cats and dogs, and sometimes hailing and all that sort of thing. So, uh, so the there's a great deal of anticipation with a storm, and I feel like there's a great deal of anticipation uh, in the film, um, specifically because you, like you said, you don't know where it's going you don't you see that something is developing but you don't know what and in that sense you are very much in the same position uh, as curtis himself and i think the film does a great job nickel uh, jeff nichols does a great job of making us uh, putting us very much in the same position and sort of even in the same mental state as the curtis character because the dreams are shot when when, the, when a dream starts because we see probably five of his dreams or rather nightmares uh, and when they start, they look pretty much like any other scene. So we don't know if it's if it's a scene that's starting, or if it's a nightmare. And what's good about that is because is that uh, it it gives you a false sense of security as a nightmare is about to happen, but it also gives you a sense of dread in everyday life. When you Mm. see, when a character is just going about, when Curtis is just going about his business, you think like, is this a nightmare? Is something bad going to happen? Oh wait, no, it's his actual life. And you, you never, and then, and then you feel like, okay, so I guess we're fine. And then the next scene will start very much like the scene before it. And you think like, okay, so what's going to happen in his life now? Oh, it's a horrible nightmare. And so, the film always kind of keeps you on your t- on your toes like that, and uh, you're never really sure where it's where it's headed. Yeah. Um, one thing that I really like, and I talked about this earlier, is that yeah, it does not. He could be totally crazy, not totally crazy, but he could be getting crazier. And is mm-hmm. and you know when you determine like who his mother is and mental illness can run in the family. Um, and then you, and then like he start it's, it goes beyond his dreams. He starts to hear things. Hmm. He starts maybe even to see things. Um, although you never totally know what he is seeing or what he's not seeing. There's a, a scene where he pulls over to the side of the road to watch a beautiful lightning storm. It's really one of the only times that he experiences a, uh, uh, 
one of his little visions or what have you, a hallucination, um, and he's not frightened by it, but he actually finds it strangely beautiful. Um, but you don't know if that's actually happening or not. Yeah. And the film never tells you uh, because his wife and his child are in the back seat of the car and they are both asleep. And so he pulls over and just watches it and he says out loud, is anybody else seeing this? Which is something you could say of something that is happening and something that isn't. Yeah. Uh, and something that he's clearly feeling for a lot of the, yeah, through a lot of the film, both in his waking life and in the nightmares. And so, but what I like is that the film doesn't come down uh, on one side or the other, and neither does the character. That's what I like, is that the character, he's really entertaining the idea. It's like, I might be going crazy. He goes to the library. He gets a book on mental illness. He spe- he immediately jumps, because of his history, or rather his mom's history, he jumps immediately to paranoid schizophrenia. He goes to see a psychiatrist, uh, or rather a, a counselor, and like he is really assuming that something is happening here. Hmm. But there is a sense in the back of his mind of, well, just in case, maybe just in case I'm not crazy. Yeah. I think I better build up this shelter a little bit just in case something is coming, but I'll also be seeking out help and possible medication just in case I'm crazy. That way I got all my ducks in a row. Yeah. Because if you think about it, like this is a film that, that really takes that situation that he's in seriously. Because if you were really in that situation where you were, uh, these dreams were enough for you to to really be thinking that there's something more to them, and to to be feeling like you're having these premonitions and feeling like there's really something else going on, even though other things would tell you that you were crazy, maybe uh, that wouldn't be enough for you. Like right. it wouldn't be enough to say like, Oh, that's all right. All these things I'm experiencing, I'm probably just crazy. Like it's never enough to just let that, you know, to just accept that like, Oh, yeah. okay. Well, everybody seems to think it should be this way. So I guess I'll just believe that and just abandon all these other right. feelings that I'm having about my, you know, premonitions and, and, uh, nightmares and everything. Like, so what, he, what you would do in that situation is to do what he would do is to, research it and to look into it but still kind of hold this candle for uh is this real is this is this something that i need to take seriously because if it is real and you throw it away saying well i'm probably just crazy then you'd be so much worse off than if you were to actually be crazy and think that you uh i lost my train of thought there (laughs) <laughs> That's all right. I, I can I can I can pick it up because there is. A, I'll, I'll I'll say a couple of things. Number one is um, speaking as somebody, and I've I've been pretty vocal about it on the show. Uh, speaking as somebody who was, was diagnosed depressed uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, um, I can attest to like the, it. It was very strange because you're diagnosed as that, and you know that you can't totally trust. Your feelings, you know, it's. I, I assume that something like paranoid schizophrenia, where you can't even trust your senses, I, I imagine that is, you know, exponentially worse and and more frustrating. But in my case, you can't really trust your feelings. You know, you start to think that like your friends are against you. You start to think that nobody actually likes you and that everybody hates you as much as you hate yourself, and that nobody wants to listen to what you have to say, and that you are worthless. Like that's what you feel 
but you also know that you've been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like, well, I know that's probably not true. So I should do, I should try to psych myself out and try to say like, okay, or psych myself up and say like, okay, you know, that's not true. It's fine. You've been diagnosed and this is what's giving you trouble. But then in the back of your mind, it's like, well, just in case I should try to, I should try to make, I should try to be extra nice to my friends just in case they are against me so I can get them on my side. Like it's a very, it's a very frustrating place to be in. But what I like about what this reveals about the character of Curtis is that the film toys with the idea. It doesn't necessarily toy with the idea, but like his, his wife gets upset with him because he's putting time and money into building this shelter. Yeah. And she, and some of it without telling her. Yes. He starts construction without telling her. Right. Um, and, uh, and he takes the construction equipment from his work without telling his boss, which gets him in trouble. Yeah. Uh, and so, so in her mind, he's just doing this thing for whatever reason. But in his mind, he like whether it be seeking out a psychiatrist and possible medication or building the shelter, he's doing both for the sake of his family. Yeah. If it was him by himself, who knows what he might do? Mm-hmm. But if there's a storm coming, I got to look after my family. If I'm crazy, I need to do whatever I can to make sure that this does not affect my family the way my own mother's craziness affected mine. Right. And so it... You see, you actually find what, and though he wants to kind of go it alone and doesn't tell his wife uh, what's going on, uh, you do get a sense that he does. He is very committed to his family and a generally a pretty decent guy who, up until now, probably is an incredibly loving and attentive husband and father, and probably a good worker. And he's just really a salt of the earth type of person. Um, but then this happens, and his actions could look selfish from one point of view, or obsessive. But in actuality, he is trying to cover all his bases as far as his family's safety and welfare is concerned. Um, and so I want to uh, continue along those lines, because we're starting to talk about his relationship to his wife. Uh and that that to me is the most intriguing thing about the film it's what i it's what i connected to the most um because we do at some point uh his wife does confront him about what's going on and he just and he can't get away from her anymore because i believe he has what she thinks is a seizure but is in fact a horrible horrible dream that actually causes him to like bite his cheek or bite his tongue and starts bleeding and stuff she calls the paramedics so like 3 a.m finally he comes clean with what's been happening Mm -hmm. and and that's the thing is and he when he comes clean he comes clean and he also says you know me you know what i come from specifically you know my mom and now I'm starting to worry about this. And right. so, and in that moment, like his wife is just so understanding and, but still cautious, you know, I mean, she loves her husband. She wants to take care of him, but at the same time, like she wants him to get better. If she certainly doesn't believe that these are premonitions, she thinks that he's going crazy. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll say this. Uh, you mentioned that Jessica Chastain was also in Tree of Life. Uh, and she was also in the movie The Help. Uh, yeah. Now, now I did not see The Help, but I know that she was nominated for an Oscar for Supporting Actress for The Help. 
Uh, and I know that a lot of people were saying, well, she'll either be nominated for The Help or for Tree of Life. And I remember thinking like, hey, <laughs> what about Take Shelter? Because she's great in Take Shelter. Yeah. Because I'll say this, her general, and I'll get to Michael Shannon in a moment, but her general look and her general demeanor is rather angelic, mm-hmm. as you will see if you watch uh, Tree of Life. Right. Um, and it would be very easy to make her character so understanding that she's completely unrelatable. Mm-hmm. Um, because she is supportive a good portion of the time. And she really wants to... Uh, she really wants to be there for her husband and, and encourage him and all that. But she also does... But she's also thinking in terms of like, if this goes bad, I need to care... I need to look after my daughter as well. Right. And so... Uh, so there are moments when he... Uh, I guess I said this, there were spoilers. He winds up losing his job because his boss discovers that he has taken this equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he loses his job. And I haven't mentioned this yet, but their daughter is deaf and is going to be getting a uh, cochlear implant that's going to cost a great deal of money. But the insurance is going to cover that. And so there Once he loses the job, he loses the insurance. Right. And so, so not only has his his uh, decision affected them negatively financially, but now it's could be irreparable damage to his daughter. Like she right. might not be able to get this procedure now, and yeah. like it could be the difference between her being able to hear and not being able to hear for ten more years. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, money is one thing, but that is a that's a huge thing, right? And. In following his obsession of building up this shelter, which he's doing for his family's welfare, or what because of what might happen, he has put what he definitely knows in jeopardy, which is my daughter is deaf and she needs this procedure. Um, and so, when his uh, when his wife hears about this. Because she's so overjoyed that they're not going to have to pay for this procedure. And, and when she hears that, in fact, now they're going to have to, or more likely, not, not get and not have it done. It. Yeah. Because uh, they don't have any kind of income now. So right. to be able to afford an expensive procedure when you don't even have the money to pay your bills yeah. is pretty unlikely. And so she immediately slaps him across the face, grabs the daughter, and leaves the house. Hmm. Um, clearly because she just, you know... And this is after he has told her what he's going through. Yeah. So she could conceivably say, oh, his, you know, his his craziness is starting to really affect the family, but that's not his fault. Mm-hmm. She could do that. And objectively, one could say she should do that. Yeah. But in that moment, she's overcome with emotion of the fa- of of their situation yeah and lets that run away with her and so and then they have a discussion later on about what what they can do and it's and she's at that point she's cooled off and she understands like he he can't really seem to help himself here and so now what can i do to step things up as a wife and a mother um and so it would have been easy to write this character as always supportive all the time or you know, which you would find in a character like Jennifer Connelly in a, in a Beautiful Mind, winner Best Supporting Actress, incidentally, um, <laughs> or or she could be almost completely unsupportive, 
like in uh, who was that? Was that Diane Venora in uh, The Insider or Sissy Spacek in JFK? Mm-hmm. Um, but they choose to have her be both. She's she winds up being more uh, much more supportive than not, but she also is not just a perfect it's not angel. Just a one though, yeah. yeah, it's it's. And I mean, that's just right. That's a good character. That's a character that's layered and that reacts realistically in these situations, but uh, comes out ultimately in a way that's interesting and engaging enough enough for us to to really get something out of the movie, for us to really connect with her and, I guess, learn something. And you see that she's... You see the effort there. Oh, yeah. You know, because there's got to be tremendous uh, temptation to just to just run and just and, get away from this guy's craziness before it gets worse. And pretty much everyone in her life would validate her for that. Like mm-hmm. who would who would say like well, your husband seems to be going crazy, lost his job, perhaps cost your daughter yeah. the ability to hear. You should just stick with him and and stick it out. Like everyone around her would say just just get away from him like he's not he's not doing what he should do for you. Well, and he tells a story about his mother when he, she left him alone in the car when he was 10 and disappeared for days and then wound up and then was found eating trash in another state. And I'm sure he had told that story to his wife at some Mm -hmm. point if he's told her enough, you know, that she knows to be worried about a possible genetic uh, situation. Um, So she has to know that story and thinks like, what happens if my husband leaves our daughter who is impaired out in public? Yeah. You know, she is, my daughter is even less equipped to fend for herself than my husband was when him, when his mother, you know, abandoned him. Admittedly, it wasn't her fault. She was crazy. And I'm sorry to use that term. So, so lightly, but that's yeah. th- undoubtedly that's how these characters are thinking, right? And so, um, so yeah, like it's she would be perfectly justified in some ways, uh, socially, I would say, uh, in being like, I got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't. She stays with him, and it is it takes an effort, and you see that effort uh, in Jessica Chastain's performance. Um, as much as I liked her in tree of life and then i did not see the uh the help which i hear is not that great of a movie with a lot of really good performances uh i think she's tremendous in this i think though many people would see this as michael shannon's film and it is but i mean it's it's to the credit of jeff nichols that he writes the wife character so well yeah and makes her such an integral part of the film and she becomes kind of an emotional center the the more that she uh the more that she becomes involved in in him and the more that he opens up to her, uh, the more she really becomes a character that we can identify with emotionally rather than just being inside Michael Shannon's mind and, yeah. and uh, only identifying with him. So I want to uh, move on to the end, uh, like probably the last 20 minutes of the film. Um because there are several scenes in a row that are very heavy hitting. So it's a pretty long lasting uh, climax of the film. So at this point he's lost his job. She's freaked out on him. She comes back and I mean, it's, it's a very touching scene. She immediately says, all right, here's our plan. I'm going to get a job. You're going to get another job. 
We'll see if we can bump up the procedure because he, he has benefits for the next two weeks, hmm. but the procedure was going to be in six weeks. So it's like, we're going to see if we can bump up the procedure, see what we can do. You know, and she's like, you need to see a psychiatrist, not a counselor, a psychiatrist, and we will do what we can. And she keeps saying we, hmm. and I love that yeah. because it, it shows she is not, she certainly is not giving up. She's in it for the long haul. Right. Um, but then one thing that she says she wants to do, she wants to go to this local dinner for like, you know, uh, you know, I think it's the Lions Club. The or Lions Club, yes, and I don't know what that is. It's, I, I'm not entirely sure either, but it's like a like a community type thing. It's, it's right. like a community dinner potluck. Yeah, thing. it's like a potluck. Yeah, and so, so a lot of their friends are going to be there, including, um, and this is a little bit of backstory. Um, one of uh, Curtis's coworkers, the guy who helped him get the equipment, uh, which he was not supposed to have, but then. Curtis goes on to have a dream about him, about this coworker named uh, Duart. Um, he has a dream that he go that Duart go, comes after him with a pickaxe, and he knows it's a, again. He knows it's a dream, but he goes to his boss and says, "Hey, can you transfer him off my crew? Uh, because better safe than sorry." Mm. And then, of course, that's when the boss finds out about what. Uh, Curtis has been doing with the equipment and he assumes that he transferred Dewart off of his crew to like hide his tracks or something like that. So he gets fired and then Dewart is suspended without pay for like two weeks. So they go into, uh, they go to the, the lion's club dinner because specifically that's what Samantha, that's the, that's uh, Curtis's wife. That's what Samantha says she wants to do. She wants to do something that feels normal. Yeah. And so they go in, but they notice all eyes are, are on them, or at least Curtis does. And then and he sees Dewart, who's just giving him the, the stink eye, as I like to call it. The stink Evil eye. eye. The crook eye. I've never heard that one. I think I heard that uh, on Seinfeld. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, so Dewart comes in and confronts him in public and uh, actually, like, pushes him and then punches him. Yeah, it and just... It- Things devolve quickly, and yeah. there's physical fighting ensues. Yeah, and Curtis's response is interesting. He first, you know, tries to defend himself, and he's he gets knocked over, like, and he's got food all over him, and he's on the floor, and uh, and Dewart's confronting him and stuff, and then uh, Curtis has an absolute meltdown, and and you see like all the stuff. All the stuff, like the real paranoia, the the premonition part of him, not the, hey, I might be crazy. It's the, I'm not crazy. Yeah. That part of him comes out. Because all of these things have been building up inside him for so long. He's he's having to kind of bottle all of these fears right. and, and paranoias and all these things. And... Uh, no one understands that this is exactly what he's going through. The only thing one he's talked to about it at all is his wife, and even she, he, yeah. he, he didn't want to talk to it about. Talk with it about. Talk about with it. Talk with her about it. That might be it. You're welcome. Um, and that well, and that's the thing is that he, uh, yeah, when he talks with her about it, uh, he has to frame it a certain way. Mm-hmm. He has to say. 
these are the dreams I'm having and these are the thoughts that I'm having. And just even in his tone of voice, he has to say, I know this is crazy. Yeah. Even if he doesn't say it, he needs to imply that in, in his tone of voice. Because he knows, well, he anticipates that that's what she's going to think. Exactly. And so he wants to kind of get there before she does. Right. So um, if he can say he's crazy, then she can't say... Right. Then she can't say it because he already knows it. Yes. He's going to beat her to the punch. So he's been having to act like that for so long and then suddenly... Uh, you know this confrontation, which it's it's not really hmm, you you could say it's not really his fault that Duart got suspended. Um, it's kind of because of his actions, but it's not directly his fault. Yeah, so Duart could have said no, and what's more is Duart's the one that when he got transferred off of Curtis's crew, he's the one that reported this activity to the boss because right. he felt spiteful, obviously. Yeah. So, so um, when Curtis has been in the situation where he just feels he's got all this stuff going on inside his head anyway, and then to have this come out, it's yeah. it's too much. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. And yeah. so he it, it just all erupts. And you see him suddenly, like the filter's gone. He's had yeah. this filter the entire time. And... Suddenly, it's he just unleashes the full fury of what's been going on inside his brain. Yeah, and, and it's, it's scary. It is scary, and that's the beauty of a Michael Shannon is yeah. that he, you know, up until this, like I, had, I had thought of him as a very, as an actor who's good at playing dangerous and unhinged. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ever see Revolutionary Road? No, well, I've seen part with him in it where okay. he. He's kinda, only in two scenes. I've seen one of those scenes then where he yeah. goes a little. Nuts. Yeah, his character is mentally ill mm-hmm. in that film. Um, and it's a wonderful performance. He was nominated for that, um, and good for him, because uh, he does he makes the most of his two scenes. And, uh, and incidentally, it was his performance in that that led me to think, you know, if they were ever going to recast the Joker, I think he'd be a good... <laughs> I think he'd be good at it. He kind of has... He's kind of lean, but he also has... A, he, he puts you on edge. He just has a quality to him that puts you on edge. But uh, with the character of Curtis, and you see how tender he can be to his daughter and to his wife, you see he can... He, Michael Shannon is a good enough actor that he can play his his archetype, you know, the, the way uh, his typecasting... He can play down. against his type. A, a, yeah. Against type. Thank you very much. Uh, and so... But in that moment... It, it's the Michael Shannon you know and love. Yeah. And, and, and it, it is amazing that for the most of the film, you think, like, he doesn't really set you on edge, and you're like, there's no way he'd ever hurt his family. Like, he's, he's right. while he's having trouble, he's not dangerous. And then there's moments like this, and a little bit uh, later on in the, in, the, in the shelter, which I guess we'll talk about yeah. in a bit, there's a few of those moments when suddenly you're like... I don't know what he could do. I don't yeah. know what he's capable of. And that's and that is that is where I thought the film was headed. And I was like, I don't like this at all. <laughs> um, but so yeah, he. I mean, he basically is saying like, you think you guys think I'm crazy? And he's and he's screaming at everybody in the uh, in the hall there. Yeah. Uh, and but then it's more than merely do you think I'm crazy. Then he switches gears and he says, "There's a storm coming." Mm-hmm. Like he show, he's completely on board with all of his. Uh, all of his visions, all of his premonitions. And he says, and not one of you is prepared. You know, nothing. It's like, this is going to be like nothing you've ever seen. And he just 
loses it completely and then just stands there alone. Everyone is looking at him just aghast at what they've just seen. Uh, and then there is his wife and their daughter and she's just staring at him, you know, wide eyed and in a, in a scene that makes me choke up even uh, now a little bit, like she comes up and like hugs him and then he hugs her back and then like, you know, puts his hand on his daughter's head and stuff. And it's just such a, like, I cannot think of a more, uh, you know, a better time for her to be like, okay, yeah, I've done what I could. I'm leaving. Yeah. She could have, she could have walked out when she saw, especially because it happened in public. Right. And, and it's, it's almost because it's in public that she knows my action right now is the, this is going to maybe the most important thing I ever do in my marriage. Yeah. I can leave him and abandon him and confirm all of his worst concerns or I can show him that I, that I love him. Yeah. And so she, she chooses the latter and it's a really tender moment and very touching. Uh, and then the next scene, a big storm hits, Mm. you hear the tornado sirens and he immediately jumps up and uh, grabs his family and they run out to the shelter and they and it's raining really hard. There's definitely a tornado coming, mm-hmm. and uh, and they get down there. They lock it. They he like I said, he bought some gas masks. He they put the gas masks on. Uh, Samantha does not want to, but he he has her do it anyway. And they just sit there and they sleep. And uh, you don't know how long they've been down there. Uh, probably six to twelve hours, I would assume, if that. Uh, long enough for them to fall asleep and then wake up naturally and, and all that. So, uh, so they're trying to determine whether or not they can go back out. That's the thing about shelters is like, well, you can't see out there, but I guess, you know, you can hear if, if stuff is going poorly. Right. Um, it's kind of a euphemism if, (laughs) if everything is just going totally to hell. You know, if there's a nuclear fallout or there's a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. What have you? Something like that. Although, would you be able to hear either of those things? If zombies were outside the door eating people, you might be able to hear that. I think so, yeah. You'd, you might be able to hear screaming, I'll tell you that. Maybe. Nuclear fallout, you won't hear that. You won't hear that. Yeah. And uh, so, so there's a lot of things that could be, have totally gone wrong, and you'll, there's no way you could know from inside the shelter. Right. But they don't hear anything. They certainly don't hear rain beating down or hail or anything like that. When I say they don't hear anything, let me uh, rephrase. Samantha doesn't hear anything. And their daughter, who is deaf, and so her other senses are a bit more heightened, she does not feel anything. She doesn't feel the rumble of thunder. They specifically ask. Um, He goes up. He puts his hand on on the metal door of the shelter, and he says he feels something. He hears it. It's still going on. And his wife says, there's nothing going on. And, and she's like, you, you need to open the door now. And so he says, no, I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm, you know, terrible things are happening out there. Um, and so this, this might, this is probably the, the pivotal moment. And so she says, you need to open the door. And so he's like, I can't do it. And so he, 
he holds out the key for her to open the door. He's like, can you do it? And she says, I could do it. And you'd see that everything is fine, but it won't mean anything. It won't, you know, it won't take like you need to take this step. Yeah. And finally he takes, he takes the key and walks up and you can tell he's terrified. You know, like just because his wife thinks everything is fine, he, that is not enough for him. Yeah. And he doesn't believe it. Yeah. He's the one who didn't want anyone to go outside. So he's, he's willing to say in giving her the key, he's saying, maybe I'm crazy, but you take care of it. Then I don't, you know, I can't deal with it. Yeah. Um, and since maybe it's because there's just something wrong with me, you deal with it for me. Yeah. But she won't let him. She's like, I want you to deal with it yeah and in doing so i want you to trust me right you know and uh and so he finally goes and opens the door and it's bright and sunny outside everything is fine you can see that some tree branches have fallen down but otherwise everything is fine people are setting up their patio furniture which has fallen fallen over right and uh and it's at that moment and then they uh, smash cut and they're in a psychiatrist's office Hmm. and uh the psychiatrist is explaining that yes things are pretty bad um, and, and that he recommends that they go on vacation. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because if you think about it, that sequence of when he blows up at the, at the Lions Club dinner all the way through to the end of the storm or to the, to them coming out of the, the storm cellar really, uh, or shelter, I guess. Um, that's a relatively long sequence in the film mm-hmm. and that during all that time, I think he hasn't come back really from embracing this idea right. um, from just embracing his, his fears and premonitions and saying, this is real. Um, Cause he's kind of, he's kind of with it throughout that whole thing. He doesn't have, uh, he doesn't really have the self doubt so much until maybe the very end, right before they go out. And so yeah. um, through that whole time, his wife has to kind of be with him in that, like, when he blows up at the club, uh, all the way home, all the way through the night. Um, and I mean, during the, during the storm, she's got to be, you know, what could she be thinking to herself? Like as she sits there with her gas mask on. Exactly. Yeah. Is she thinking like, was he right about everything? Um, uh, is it just a storm? Like they live in a part of the country where they're, there would be storms. I mean, there was a storm cellar back there in the first place when right. they moved into the house, one that yeah, they had never there used. There are tornado sirens. Like, this right. is a very real danger. Right. So, it's not like this is an out of the ordinary... Well, it's out of the ordinary, but it's not like it's an unheard of circumstance. Right. So, uh, what does she think? And she has to be there, be there with him throughout throughout all this and figure out how she's gonna she's gonna react to him and it's really kind of uh i love the way the tension builds in that scene in the uh in the shelter because there were several things I, I remember thinking like how would i deal with this situation like and part of me was worried that what would have actually happened is that he would have like gotten rid of the key somehow yeah. like he would have swallowed the key or left the key outside yeah. so they could never get back out or something like that like who who knows? Like we said, we don't know what he's capable of at this point. So, or that he just. Ref- I was worried that he would just refuse to give her the key, and then she has to get it from him, right? Which forcibly means possibly kill him. Yeah, and like, the, and if we as the audience are having all these thoughts, you know that her character is having all the same thoughts. Yeah. Um. 
So it's really a frightening situation, and the way that it resolves is it shows a great strength on her part and uh, ultimately a, a great strength on his part as well in in uh, opening up the, the door himself. And in, and that's the thing is like, in my view, like that, that one, two punch of the, the dinner scene or, you know, the big, uh, the scene in the hall at the Lions club. Um, and then in the shelter, the, the, the argument that I make about this movie, especially when you get to the very end, which is something we'll do in a moment. But, uh, the argument that I make is like, this is a movie about their relationship. Oh yeah. You can, I mean, even when people say that, uh, well, it's, as I said earlier in the episode, well, it's, it's like a Noah story. It could be, you know, talking about like religious fervor or whatever, or just a exploration of mental illness. It's like, yes, it can be all those two, but it is first and foremost about these people relate, these people's relationship. And, and it seems to, it, it seems to shift to her. Like she's the one who has to make sacrifices she's the one the one that has to really uh be strong for the both of them but i mm. think those two scenes set up so beautifully that like all right he blows up in the middle of dinner she shows that she loves him and that she's not going anywhere she goes into the shelter with him which makes sense of course because it is right. raining rather hard there's no question there's a, a huge storm coming she goes in the shelter with him she puts on the gas mask why would mm. you need a gas mask in the middle of a storm yeah she does, and she she fights him a little bit, and then she finally puts it on. Okay, I'm trusting you now. I'm il- I've illustrated before that I'm with you and that I love you. I'm now illustrating that I trust you. Mm-hmm. And then, at the very end of the scene, now you need to trust me. I've demonstrated that I trust you. Now you need to trust me. And because he has, because he has seen how much she has been there for him, that gives him probably just enough strength to open that door on his own yeah and i think this is one of the things that could be a problem with the film uh i it's not a problem for me but uh maybe that's because i see it the way that you do that it's about the relationship more than Mm -hmm. about the illness because one problem that people could have with the film and maybe they have i'm i i haven't read enough uh, uh commentary i guess on the film to know but if it's purely about the mental illness, if that's more what we're talking about, then I can see uh, people having a problem with the way that she deals with the mental illness. Because if you were to say, if the film were saying, the way to deal with that mental illness is to just face those fears. Because what she says is like, you have to open the door now, yeah. you just have to face your fears. And this is not the proper way to 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 deal with actual paranoid schizophrenia, right. if that's what we're talking about. And so... I, I can understand having people see this and think like, well, that's a that's a simplified or an incorrect way to approach a mental illness, um, because I feel like the film is not about the mental illness or any mental illness. Maybe uh, that's why I think these scenes still work for me. Yeah, it's that I think like it is an interesting portrait of mental illness. There's no question about it, but it's about much more than that, mm-hmm. um, and so. We'll talk about the last scene, and then we'll move into some of the, the thematic stuff, although we already have uh, to a certain extent. Um, so the very last scene, like I said, they go see a psychiatrist. He recommends that they go on vacation, not not because like, hey, take a vacation. Like, that's the worst psychiatric advice. <laughs> but he specifically says, you need to, we need to separate 
Curtis from this shelter, mm-hmm. at least for a while. Yeah. And they're like, well, every summer we go to Myrtle Beach. And he's like, do that. And when you get back, we're really going to need to commit to some care for Curtis. And it's not to- And then he says, does that mean I'm going to have to leave my family? And he's like, it means you really need to like be show that you are committed to he the psychiatrist never says you're going to have to go to an institution so we don't know what the future holds as far as you know is he going to wind up like his mother who knows uh so it shows them on at myrtle beach and curtis looks like he's doing fine he's uh with his daughter they're building a sand castle and uh samantha's in cooking or something and uh then they, uh, his daughter notices something far off. A storm is gathering. And, uh, and then his wife notices that the storm is gathering uh, off over the ocean. And she notices, here comes a, a funnel of a tornado. And there's another one. And then it starts raining. And by the way, one aspect of his dream, I should note, is that when it rains, it rains this thick, oily-type rain, not regular water. So it starts to rain, and... She holds her hand out, and sure enough, it's these thick, oily drops. Viscous rain. Yes. And, and so Curtis brings his daughter up to the house, and the three of them just, like, watch the storm, but then Curtis quickly, like, snaps into action, and he basically says, like, Sam, we gotta go. And she's just, like, staring off in the distance, and she just says, okay. Smash cut to black. The end. Of, that's the end of the movie. Uh, it is a, an ending that infuriates people. <laughs> um, it is an ending that has been debated, maybe more so than any other ending of any movie last year. <laughs> uh, it's it's really interesting. People's different take on that ending. Yeah. Um, now, my, because some people say it, this might be another one of Curtis's dreams, or. It might actually be that his visions have come true. Okay. Now, here's my take. It doesn't matter. What matters is that she believes him. He acknowledges that she believes him. He takes charge as a result. And they move on. They do. Yeah. And, they're, and they're there together. Yeah. Because here's the thing. If it's real life, then she is suddenly she suddenly trusts her husband a lot more but then she always trusted him a little bit yeah because she loves him her love has informed a trust of her husband even if she can't trust that he's totally mentally stable she trusts that he loves his family and will do whatever is necessary to protect them even if it's from himself she trusts that and now when she sees this this confirms that my husband was right but what's more but I was going to be with him no matter what yeah and so that's 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 if it's real. It's it's interesting picture of faith if it is mm-hmm. because there's it would be a different type of I, I've thought this before about the Christian faith. Like if I were to, for instance, see suddenly Jesus coming down from the clouds, how I kind of question what my own reaction would be because I feel like a huge shocked reaction would in some way suggest that I didn't believe it to some degree before. Mm-hmm. And uh, if her reaction to to what she sees at the end at the end of this movie were total disbelief and almost inability to do anything, that might suggest that she dealt with Curtis right. and she'd handled him 
but she never in any way believed him. Right. And I think her reaction shows, especially when she just says, okay. Yeah. Uh, comprehension. That, comprehension, exactly. And that she was always willing to accept that maybe maybe he was right all along. Right. Like, she had that faith in him against all odds. And it's interesting because in that moment, he is a, he's a man of action. He's not like, he doesn't just stare at, stare at the clouds being like, am I dreaming? Is this real? He just recognizes, all right, time to go. Yeah. Let's get out of here. That's if it's real. If it is not, if it is yet another dream, then it is by far, then it is hardly a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Because in the dream, because it, uh, I didn't really touch on this earlier, but uh, he has had a dream. He's had which, dreams where she's against him, Where basically. she has, Yeah gone after him right and so with she, a knife she's been separated from him in those dreams yes. in the dreams he's always isolated no one's he's, ever on his side sometimes his daughter but she's not even a real person in his dreams. yeah she's she's like a prop pretty much <laughs> a prop that he loves and and instinctively wants to protect but yeah nothing more than that when it comes to people whether it be co-workers whether it even be his wife he they're all against him and he is totally alone yeah even the dog even the dog good call uh if this is a dream, then it means that her love and her support for him in real life has seeped into his consciousness so much that even in the, that he's not alone even in the dream. Yeah. That she is with him and she's going to be with him. And because of that, it is not a nightmare. The two of them are together. Yeah. One way or the other, whether it's real, whether it's not, they are together till the end. Yeah. And that, to me, is what the film is about. Either way, the film is... is uh showing that something in their relationship has changed that they are yes. closer together and that there's hope for them yes um it, even if this is utter destruction that they're looking at they're moving forwards they're going towards something they're going to go together they 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 have a they have a plan of sorts yeah. and they're and they're together now i i sort of compare it to the end sort of compare it to the ending of lost all right because there are a lot of people who say like oh it doesn't you know it doesn't hang together it's such a cop out it's like but if you it, it, it True. Uh, and that's where <laughs> I totally don't uh, uh, compare the two. But the, the ending of the, of the show seems to make the argument that these characters were so focused on the mysteries of the island that they failed to recognize that they have created some of the strongest, if not the strongest, relationships they've ever had in their life. They did not... Like, they were so busy looking forward at what was what was happening that they didn't bother to look side to side and see who was standing with them. Hmm. And, and that's, and incidentally, it's also sort of saying that we, as the viewer, were so busy trying to figure out what this show was about that we failed to, to recognize, or maybe don't fail to, but that we sort of take for granted the characters that we've come to know and love. The whole reason that in my view that we care about those mysteries is because we're spending time with characters that we like or at least sympathize with and that we find interesting characters like Locke and Jack and stuff like that. Now there is a cop out aspect to that ending because it's six seasons long and they can't possibly wrap up everything. And so it's almost like we don't need to wrap up everything. It's about relationships. Okay. And, and there's something like loss is much more based around like, setting up a mystery to which there's going to be an answer. Right. Which this isn't the goal for uh right. for uh for take shelter. Yeah. And it's not a cop out ending because there's nothing to cop out. They could have ended it any number of ways. Yeah, exactly. There were no loose ends to tie up. 
Yeah. And, um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't unfold in any level as a mystery. Right. Which Lost certainly does. Um, yeah. There's another film, and I, maybe if I describe a little bit of it, you'll, I can't think of which one it is, but I know okay. it's one that, I believe we've watched it for movie night. Um, there, somehow in the end, it ends with someone's going to be taken into jail, maybe, and I think, like, his dad maybe is taking him to jail, and there's a, a monologue or something over top where he's saying, like, what if we didn't go, and what if we oh, just, like... Oh, that's 25th Hour. That's where it is, yes. It's not... Is it his dad taking him to jail? I yes. It is. And that that makes me think of this ending, even though I've forgotten which film it was. Um, but that's another ending where it it kind of shows you something else happening, and they talk about it, and then it, it ends without telling you, like... What is what is happening? Is yeah. it is it going to be this? Is it is this just them imagining that? Yeah. Um, I but, always took it as imagination, but at the same time, yeah, it's 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 one of those ones where it doesn't really matter. It's not important right. what actually happened. It's just what that sequence says about the characters and about the story thus far. Yeah, because um, as with that, the story isn't about whether or not he ends up in jail. Um, and in Take Shelter, the story isn't about whether or not he was crazy all along, yeah. um, or knew what was going on all along. Like that's not that's not why the film was made to explain explain that aspect of the story. So uh, I'm going to move into some of the uh, thematics, which means I'm going to read a bunch of stuff, um, or rather have Josh read it, and then we'll we'll comment on it as we go. So um, I'm going to read a couple of uh, Bible verses first. Um, one of them you've heard at probably every wedding. Um, and it's First Corinthians thirteen four through seven. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not. Uh, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not deli- delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. It it always protects. Always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. And that pretty much explains me exactly. Oh, no question That's, about it. You could just sub, sub, uh, you could put in Josh instead of love in all yeah. these situations. Josh and is would, patient. Josh is kind. Josh does not envy. Certainly not boast. Yeah, what has he got to boast about? Not those flip-flops. Not these ones. Yes, thank you. So, um, but yeah, and what's it, like when you look at this list here, this little checklist, like that... Like, Take Shelter is a really good portrait of love. Mm-hmm. Either one or the other is doing one of these at some point. But specifically, I do want to focus on Jessica Chastain's character. Like, she's she's not perfect, you know? She, she has her initial reactions, and they're not probably what she should have done. But she go, she, her patience wins out, you know? And her kindness and her trusting and, and just wanting to be there for her husband. So, um, I will read this, uh, another, uh, will I read that just yet or will I hold off? Yeah. Yeah, I'll hold off. So what I wanted to talk about, uh, very briefly before we get into all these other things we have to read is, uh, so I'm married and Josh, you're married. Yes. Not to each other though. No. That's an important distinction to make. Yeah. It would be, uh. That'd be kind of that'd be like a zany uh, CBS sitcom if that happened by mistake. Oh, so, wow. oh no, 
And now, for some reason, legally, we have to stay married for like two years. Probably so that we can win some large amount of money. Exactly, yes. Or keep some parent happy. Yeah. My great uncle said, I want you to get married and stay married to another man for X amount of money. Then you'll get my inheritance. Right. So not only are they trying to stay together... Because the uncle's always coming over. They never know when he'll come over to visit. Right. But they're always trying to bump him off just a little bit. Oh, man. Because then they get that money, and then they can get separated, which is all they really want. You so know what? I'm can... on board with this sh- this show. I, I, I can't believe that CBS hasn't picked this up already. <laughs> um, well, the episode hasn't gone out yet. Well, it doesn't so. have to. CBS has mics in your home. That's right. So, um, but yeah, so we are, we are both married, and... Uh, and it's fascinating, and so that's that's what this episode is about uh, a little bit, is marriage and what it means and what it can be. Um, and what I have what I have told people, uh, my my wife and I are part of the premarital counseling ministry at our church. So, uh, and that's a fairly recent development, but uh, but we've also just uh, we've had friends who, when they get engaged, they like meet with us and uh so even before we are officially part of the ministry we've we've done it before uh and what i have said is that marriage is the hardest thing i've ever had to do um that includes grieving over loved ones uh you know finishing college you know leaving friends behind as you move like it's the hardest thing i've ever had to do now of course it is also immensely rewarding but you know it means dealing with another person and having them deal with you and it is it is a constant uh exercise in like humility and you know testing of your own patience testing of your spouse's patience and all that sort of thing um and i don't mean to like make it sound terrible but frankly like the bad things are easier to vocalize than the good things which i'd say is true of almost anything mm-hmm. um which is maybe why we're all so negative all the time but uh yeah the good things i'll, I'll talk about the good things in a moment but uh but yeah that's the thing that fascinates me is uh and and Take Shelter is very much about this. And then our companion film, which we'll talk about in a moment, is also about this, which is, you know, when you get married, you're totally in love with this person and and things are going great on that day and probably for the next week, maybe year, but that's not even a guarantee. Um, But sooner or later, something's going to happen. Your spouse may not be blowing up at your reception and telling everyone there's a storm coming and none of you will be prepared. Yeah. Because his friend uh, knocked him into the wedding cake or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so uh, so things will probably be good for a while. But like sooner or later, you will discover that there is that there's more to this person. That as it turns out, they have their own thoughts and opinions. Mm-hmm. Just as you have your own thoughts and opinions. And sometimes they're actually not going to match up. And... And that's just, like, small disagreements. Sometimes, like, you will find, like, wow, my spouse has the ability to aggravate me to no end. But also you discover, in my case, you discover, like, wow, I did not know I could be this mean. Mm -hmm. I did not know I could be so impatient. I did not know that I could let my emotions run away with me. Well, I kind of knew that. But, (laughs) you know, you find out things about yourself. Yeah. And so the question then becomes, especially in in modern society, man, 
<laughs> Sorry, I feel Speaking like I had of being to be so negative about everything. <laughs> yeah. But like especially in modern society, I mean we regularly hear about the divorce rate and yeah. that sort of thing. So that like and I I remember I'll I'll bring this up. Um and maybe I won't uh say her name specifically, but there was a I remember seeing on Entertainment Tonight many many years ago a uh a famous actress who had just gotten married. And uh the the interviewer said like like oh congratulations you know you th- you think you guys are going to make it you think you you know and she's like she goes absolutely you know hey i as long as it's fun i just want it to be fun you know as long as it's fun i'll be you know i'll be here and she's like well it's not gonna be yeah and incidentally she got divorced uh not long after that and it's just like and that that does seem to be the attitude and i'm sorry if i sound really stodgy but like do you like what is like has there ever been anything in your life that is consistently fun all the time drugs absolutely <laughs> look okay i'm sorry that was i did not phrase that well besides drugs right is there anything that is consistently great all the time i think it's just drugs just drugs yeah no question about it and even then only the hard ones oh, only yeah. the really hard drugs yeah like the ones you have to inject <laughs> So, anyway, moving on. Uh, but it's just one of those things that's just like, you know, my favorite movies, I don't always, I'm not always in the mood to watch them. Yeah. You know, and sometimes, you know, the good ones, the ones that I really love, chances are I'll see something new every time. Mm-hmm. But I also might see a flaw. It took me a long time before I saw a major flaw with Jaws. Which is, now I have to know. Which is, why did Brody let his son go even into the pond? He knew the shark's out there. Yeah, it's true. Nobody else believes him, but he knows it's still out there. If there's anyone he has control over, it's his children. Exactly. Now, here's the thing. Maybe they sneaked away. They didn't. They didn't. Isn't, isn't, is there a part where he says something like, just be careful about... He just know. says, he goes, he goes, do me a favor, just stay in the pond, okay? Yeah. Sharks can go in the pond. <laughs> In fact, one does, you know, and it's just like, if he is like, he knows it's still around. Don't go in the water. That's the easiest way to not be eaten by a shark. Don't go in the water. He like, it's one. And that's the thing. It's an easy fix. If suddenly, if his, if his son sneaks off and he doesn't know that his son is in danger until yeah, the very last minute. Could have been much, yeah. He could have done it that way. But yeah, wow. that's a that's a terrible movie. I don't know if I'd go that far, but uh, <laughs> but I remember when I heard that, I was just like, when I thought of that, I was just like, huh, that is a glaring error, and it does not at all fit with our main character. He yeah. is overcautious. Similarly, about the uh, like twentieth or thirtieth time that I watched Star Wars, I was like, there's no such thing as Jawas. Then I just can't enjoy it anymore. Are you being a jerk? Talking robots, I get. Jawas. Are you, you making fun of, of me? I've seen talking robots. They're in Japan. I think my uh, my problem with Jaws, which incidentally is still my second favorite movie of all time, I think my problem is perfectly rational because it is a no, flaw is. with character consistency. That's true. No, it okay. Is. Moving on. I'm just I'm just reflecting a similar experience that I had. Okay, listener, you've come across another example. 
having a co-host <laughs> is no longer fun. And in fact, now I'm questioning if it ever was. It wasn't. It wasn't. No. I've come to that conclusion quickly. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, and so like this, at, the attitude that like, what makes you think that like, sure, I understand like if you're, you're madly in love with somebody and you want and it's like, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person, but they off, I think people often feel like I want to spend the rest of my life feeling this feeling. It's like, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. It's anything else that you do that you enjoy. Like, can you imagine saying like, I want to spend the rest of my life doing this? Like, what if you're eating the best pie you've ever had? Would you say, I, I want to eat this pie for the rest of my life? Yeah. No, you don't. And it's just, it reminds me of a, an episode of The Simpsons where uh, Bart, uh, where uh, Homer gets the kids a trampoline and Bart just starts jumping on it and goes, I will never get tired of this. And speaking <laughs> as somebody who uh, once had a trampoline, you get tired of it. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, Clearly, the writers of The Simpsons knew that by having him s- declare it so definitively. Yeah. Um, and now, this is not all to say that, listen, you're going to get tired of your marriage. Right. That's, that's not the point. The, the point is that um, we tend to sometimes go into something like this thinking that because it's something that we love and, and because it's something that brings us some kind of pleasure or joy, that it's going to always be like that. Right. And like everything else in life, it's not. Yes. And uh, it's, it's just kind of amazing that almost all of us go into it not thinking about that. And so I want to, uh, I want to uh, quote something real quick, oddly enough. Um, the pretty standard marriage vows. Now, uh, Jen and I wrote our own as well as taking these vows, but you've heard them a million times uh, at uh, at weddings. Maybe you've said them. It's entirely possible you've said them. I don't remember what you said. Probably we said these cliche as all this. Um, okay. <laughs> I take you to be my lawfully wedded blank. Could be wife, could be husband. Hey, it's not my place to say. I don't know what I meant by that. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. Okay. This is a this is a promise. It is not merely a declaration of, things are going great now. Let's it's keep doing a, it. It's a, hey, when things go bad, I will remain. Yeah. And so uh, I will read, or would you like to read this first passage? Uh, I mentioned the... Uh, there's a book called The Meaning of Marriage written by Tim Keller, and he talks about the, the marriage vow uh, and what a vow means. And so uh, there's, a, there's a passage here that, uh, that I would like to read or, ra- or have Josh read. Josh, do you want me to read it or you? I'll take a crack at this Okay, one. here we go. All right, so as Tyler said, this is from Timothy and Kathy Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. This chapter, however, written by Tim Keller. Okay. Well, here we go. Okay. Years ago, I attended a wedding in which the couple wrote their own vows. They said something like this, I love you and want to be with you. The moment I heard it, I realized what all historic Christian marriage vows had in common, regardless of their theological and denominational differences. The people I was listening to were expressing their current love for each other, and that was fine and moving. But this is not what marriage vows are. That is not how a covenant works. Wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. A wedding should not be primarily a celebration of how loving you feel now. That can safely be assumed. 
Rather, in a wedding you stand up before God, your family, and all the main institutions of society, and you promise to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future, regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. Divorce is an enormously, enormously difficult experience, even today, and that is why marriage vows can still fortify us. Vows keep you from simply running out too quickly. They give love a chance and create stability so the feelings of love, always very fitful and fragile in the early months and years, can grow strong and deep over time. They enable your passion to grow in breadth and depth because they give us the security necessary to open our hearts and speak vulnerably and truthfully without being afraid that our partner will simply walk away. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, things can and probably will get incredibly rough at some point. Who knows what it might be? It might be, you know, it could be the loss of a child. It could be the loss of a job. It could be that you're, spouse suddenly is hit with a uh, an illness uh, whether it be mental or physical you know and you have to care for them I mean and that's going to take a lot out of you I know that if Jen suddenly uh, you know got sick and and was confined to a wheelchair or something like that that would require a lot of me mm. um, and that scares me because yeah. part of me is like I-, I don't even know if I have that in me I'm I'm not very I feel like I'm not very strong um, but sooner or later, something is probably going to happen. Mm-hmm. And when that does like, and, and it might happen to both of you, but chances are, and this has been my experience in my own marriage, chances are something is going on with one of you and the other one has to support that person through it. Even if it's, even if that person doesn't want to be supported, even if that person is fighting your support, mm-hmm. um, like it, you still can get them through it and then they get through it. And then you're closer as a result, you know, not unlike the end of Take Shelter, where they went through this and they are closer than they ever have been. Um, You know, like if you think, you know, you think you're close when things are going great, like wait until things get bad and then you've come through that. The very fact that you have come through it together is astounding to me. Yeah. Um, But... uh, but yeah, and so um, I'm debating what I'm going to talk about at this point because I'm not sure if I will move into the other. Yeah, I think I will. I think I'll move into the companion film. So the companion film. What was that? I think it's time. Absolutely. The companion film is a movie by John Cassavetes, and it's worth noting that uh, I mentioned John Cassavetes last week in my discussion, uh, not last week, last episode in my discussion of uh, Rachel getting married. Yeah. Uh, I won't give a full uh, treatise on John Cassavetes because I love him so much and I could talk about him for hours, but uh, he's a filmmaker who was sort of a pioneer in American independent filmmaking. He uh, was primarily an actor and he would take the money that he made as an actor and put it into films that nobody wanted to make, (laughs) Uh, but they were so, and they were so very different. Uh, His films were very emotionally raw. He was committed to showing on-screen emotions that we're not used to seeing emotions of awkwardness and people not knowing when to stop telling a joke as i talked about uh, last episode yeah and and it's uh for those who are not that familiar with john cassavetes he started making his films in the 60s yeah and uh through into the did he make anything in the into the 80s i believe yeah i think i think he made uh love streams in the 80s okay. or maybe one or two others but yeah, yeah he died in, in 1989 hmm. um 
but th- that especially is is an important factor because that at that time, especially the the late sixties, we were not used to seeing films like that. We were not right. used to seeing the kind of films John Cassavetes makes, and um, and we're I mean, still not, incidentally. Yeah, not really. I mean, we do see there are some like them. Uh, I, I don't know if you were comparing Rachel getting married to a John Cassavetes film. A little bit, yeah. I can see that comparison. Um, stuff that's very. Uh, very character intensive, very uh, cinema verite, I guess. Yeah. Um, although he was he was one who would often have kind of uh, I want to say over dramatic performances, but they weren't really over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not, not really the right word. They're not over dramatic and they're not melodramatic. I think maybe the way to describe it is hyper dramatic. Yeah, it's, it's characters yeah. who often they they're so worried about being like exposed that they will do anything to hide who they are and their emotions and for different reasons, depending on the film. Yeah. But yeah. And so they will play things up. Like there's a movie called faces in which the characters are always laughing and you get, you eventually at first you're really annoyed and then you realize, Oh, they're laughing so that they don't cry. Hmm. They're laughing to show that they're perpetually, they perpetually find everything funny instead of, horrifying Mm -hmm. and tragic and so um so yeah that they like i'd much it's it's almost like i'd much rather play up this ridiculous emotion and be hated for that than be hated for what i really am at least then i have control over for uh, over what i am disliked for yeah um and yeah woman under the influence is a movie that i i first saw in school and i uh saw it that was the first time I saw it. The second time I saw it was uh, two days ago um, in preparation for this episode. Uh, but it uh, it lingers large in your mind. Uh, the very fact that after seeing it nine years ago that I'm that I still thought like, oh, if we're going to talk about Take Shelter, we should definitely talk about a woman under the influence. Like the fact that I remembered it so vividly after nine years speaks to the the power of this film yeah it's very affecting and mm. I, I you know it's been a, a while since i've seen it and yet there are still particular scenes that stand out as haunting or or uh you know very deeply emotional i guess it's, yeah. it's really like i said affecting and um i, th- I think it's probably my favorite cassavetes film and one of the films that really first drew me into his style and his his um his approach to filmmaking and uh yeah it's the performances are some of the things that i think the performances are are maybe one of the reasons it stands out so much um because the, those two the, the two lead actors in the film are peter falk and gina rollins and um Gina Rollins was uh, John Cassavetti's wife. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, That's not why she got the part, by the way. She was already <laughs> a pretty great actress. Yeah. Um, and she did feature prominently in, in several of his films, mm-hmm. but uh, that's there's certainly a good reason for that. She She's a fantastic actress, and I think there may be actually kind of a benefit that she is the wife of the filmmaker, because I think she really... She seems to see what it is that he wants to do in the movies, and she's able to do it. 
Um, yeah, that is that is a creative marriage that just really worked. Yeah, because I think he knew what she could do as an actress and pushed her as far as she could go. Yeah, and she knew exactly what he wanted to accomplish as a writer director, and she right. was willing to go wherever he wanted to. Yeah, and she she could really bring those bring those stories to life in the way that he wanted uh, them to be told. Yeah. Uh, my favorite of his films is probably Faces, with uh, Woman Under the Influence being a close second, I think. He did a movie called Husbands, which is not readily available. I, and, that's which, a film I've been wanting to see and, and yeah. have not. I wrote, a, I wrote a paper about it in school, and uh, I do not have that paper anymore, which is unfortunate, because it was one of my better papers because the film was so... Uh, there's just so much there that it's just like, oh, I have no problem fitting the, filling the page quota now. Yeah. Um, and casual observers to film may know little to nothing about John Cassavetes because he's not one that uh, that everyone necessarily knows about. If they know anything... Uh, by the way, that sounds in- insulting, but like they might know more as an actor than a director. He was right. in Rosemary's Baby and The Dirty Dozen, uh, chiefly. Yeah. He's been in other things, but those are the, the big ones that people might know him from. Yeah, but... He's if you're a lover of film and have not yet seen any of his movies, he's certainly one to seek out. Yeah, and it's he's not easy to watch. If I I'm trying to think, if I was going to have someone start with one of his movies, it might be Killing of a Chinese Bookie. That one's I can see pretty. That. I mean, it still has his style, but right. I think it's a bit more plot driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's I think there's more moments of levity in it than a lot of his others. Yeah. Um, even though some of those moments of levity still are. If you really cringe-inducing, yeah, still kind of drenched in a sadness. If you really, uh, if you really let yourself experience it fully, I guess. Yeah. So, a woman under the influence. It was made in 1974. Uh, as Josh said, it stars Peter Falk and Jenna Rollins as the Longettis, uh, Nick and Mabel. And uh, incidentally, I uh, this is also a film that deals with mental illness, mm-hmm. um, and I think. I think that is actually that is a very good test of marriage like it it can because yeah. because as I mentioned like if Jen were to suddenly like you know get some sort of disease that requires her to be in a wheelchair or something like that well it's still Jen I still I that's it's still her personality it's still the woman I fell in love with and that mm. makes it easier to serve her and to help her and to be there for her but when it comes to mental illness, the person is has is changing. They might still be there, mostly, but then they have these tendencies that are that's that's not them at all. Yeah. And uh, and Mabel, uh, played by uh, Jenna Rollins, uh, she and her husband have three kids together. Uh, I don't think she has a job. I think she's just a just a house uh, homemaker and all that. Uh, Nick is a blue collar working guy. And when the movie starts, she's already rather flighty, and she just she loves her kids so much, and she's a little childlike herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that helps her relate to her kids, and, yeah. and her kids really like being around her. Um, but she's not very responsible. She's not very dependable. Yeah. Um, and and Nick acknowledge that i mean he there's a scene pretty early on when one of his uh, co-workers makes a comment about his wife and he says hey she's not crazy she's unusual <laughs> you know and it's it, kind of a funny line but like you see how quickly he how quick he is to defend his wife right so he already knows that she's not your usual woman right um 
but we do get a sense of that there is some, that she is for lack of a better term unstable yeah when and it, it grows more and more like at yeah. first it's it's just like oh i guess she is unusual but well but she also like he uh he and his wife are going to have like a date night yeah um and then he winds up having to work super late and then he doesn't call her because he knows she's going to freak out, which incidentally is a mistake on his part. Uh, and she flips out by getting really drunk and going out to a bar and picking up a guy. But then I don't think she actually goes and takes him back to her place. And I don't think she actually goes through with it. I don't really remember. Uh, not really remember, but like it's, it's, it's left open. Um, but nonetheless, that is a weird instinct to yeah. just jump to that immediately. And admittedly, she had been... She had been drinking, but also she is just a very impulsive person. You can tell maybe she wants to make her husband jealous or something. Um, or maybe she wants to be embraced by somebody or whatever. And that's pretty early in the film. Um, yeah. But yeah, and so this, she's... That, that seems to me one of those things that you hear about happening to someone. Like you hear about somebody's somebody's mom doing or somebody's aunt and you think that... that, that sometimes I think that's something I can't even deal with thinking about. Like, right. I just want to say, oh, that's terrible, so I don't have to think about it anymore. Because yeah. actually having to deal with that situation, like sit down and say, all right, this is, this is my life situation now. I have to figure out how to do something with this, is uh, almost unbearable. And so then to have this movie where now we're going to sit and watch this family. That, that's not at the end of the movie. No, know? yeah, that's in the first 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's going to be a lot to deal with, you know. Yeah. And so like... So there's that going on, and and then Mabel decides she's going to have a big party for her kids and and some neighbor kids or something like that, and uh, and the party gets like out of hand, and suddenly her kids are running around naked and all that, and Nick gets home and he just flips out. It's like because now it's involving other people's kids, and the the father of those kids is hanging around, and he's like totally he doesn't know how to handle Mabel at all. Yeah. And so he's freaking out. Peter Falk's character is, is freaking out. And he winds up, and he doesn't know what to do with her either. So he, being the type of character he is, he's not a uh, saint by any stretch of the imagination. He slaps her. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, in his view, to sort of calm her down. Uh, and this, and that basically causes a total nervous breakdown on her part. And, uh, and there's an extended scene where he's trying to deal with her the family doctor's over his mother's there she's not making things any easier mm-hmm. and then finally uh it ends with mabel having to uh be committed to a mental hospital uh which we don't see we never see her there it cuts to six months later when she's getting out and and we deal with and she comes back sees her family and and it sort of starts up again yeah um and she, you know, and then her her extended family, like her parents and his parents, they finally leave. And so it's just Nick and their children and Mabel. And and it's sort of like, it's almost like Nick and Mabel have to have the conversation that they were going to have six months ago. But because she broke down, they were never able to have that conversation. They were na- never able to complete it. And now they are. And sh- it's almost like she needs to get this last bit of crazy out but what's interesting is that there's a scene where she looks not necessarily catatonic, but clearly she's trying to remain very calm, very relaxed, not be goofy and over the top. And Nick does not like that. And he pulls her into the hallway and he says, be yourself. Just be yourself. That's all I want. 
and uh, and it's interesting because he clearly has first off he's been alone for six months, but also when he sees that this is if, is this considered normal this yeah. boring quiet woman if that's the case then you know what I'd much rather have the flighty crazy woman mm. because that's who I fell in love with and maybe that's hard to deal with but so be it it's what I love and so by the end you know you know bad things happen he slaps her again but uh, she you know so it's it certainly is not an easy film but by the end they are once again together and they're willing to work through the difficulties that comes on with him being rather brutish at times Mm -hmm. and her being possibly legitimately crazy probably manic depressive if i if i had to guess yeah um but like just the strain that comes with that and they both by the end of the film either through word or actions declare i am willing to deal with this no matter what yeah um not to imply, by the way, that we're suggesting that women, if your husband slaps you regularly, you should just <laughs> buck up and deal with it. You know, yeah. there are some there is an aspect uh, to making your spouse a better person, uh, even if that means maybe leaving them uh, or, you know, to deal with the consequences of their actions. But that's not the point I'm making right now. So. So, yeah, uh, I did want to uh, move on to some other things. Um and uh, and I guess real quick we'll just we'll touch on uh, woman on the influence although we all the, already sort of did um, yeah this it's two and a half hours long which already this style with this story and these characters and the fact that you spend two and a half hours with them some people might think that's excessive but in my view it's just like I I have a a huge admiration for John Cassavetti's willingness. To spend this much time with these characters, they can't get out of this situation, and yeah. neither can you. Because, like I was saying before, like you kind of, you kind of want to get out of it. You kind of just want it to be over. And the, oh, the temptation to fast forward. Because oh, the first yeah. time I watched it was in school, and I couldn't fast forward. <laughs> this time, I'm like, oh, okay, no, just get through it. Yeah. It's fine. You like this movie. Well, because then the the more that you, I think that it being that long kind of serves the movie's purpose and that it forces you to, to engage with these characters mm-hmm. more than you want to. And it forces you to think about what does it mean to, to commit yourself to a relationship in a situation that is, that is difficult, that is not enjoyable. Like n- neither of these people are that wedding vows saying like, Oh, I love you and I want to be with you. Like, Anytime that they're saying anything like that in the film, it is, it is less of a just a f- feeling that they're having and more of a choice that they're making. Like, uh, I I love you and I will be with you, and and it's it's a hard choice to make for these people. And and um, I think you you feel that in the movie because it's so uncomfortable to watch and it's so uncomfortable to spend time with these characters and just and just see how things uh, a lot of times things just get worse. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, that's the thing is like in, with movies, with most movies, uh, romantic or just relational films, like we are told that, that if you just stick with it long and like, if you stick with it for a, like a predetermined amount of time, everything ends up okay. Everything ends up okay. Or maybe it just breaks off completely, but one thing, but it certainly will not sustain. Hmm like this and in my experience both as a watcher of John Cassavetti's film films and as a husband I know that like you know my wife and I have had times when like 
for like a whole month in some cases in in one in one case a whole summer where we just were never on the same page with one another i mean it was i felt alone she felt alone and it was very difficult for both of us um but we persisted you know and we looked for we looked for the opportunity to help the other person whenever we could which at the time was not very often because we were both very concerned with ourselves and not necessarily the other person uh and i take i personally take more responsibility for that because uh, i was dealing with a a lot of depression and i just didn't seem to care about what she was going through and so um so yeah it's it is something that there is an endurance quality to it that most movies will not have you deal with it's you know the noah bombach film the squid and the whale has a lot of awkward moments and a lot of uh, discomfort, but that's like 85 minutes. That's a short one. You know what I mean? Like, like even, it seems like even, uh, the director's like, Oh, this is exhausting. I don't I think I want to deal with quite this, this too much time with these people. Um, um, but uh, another thing that I love about Woman Under the Influence is the way that it ends as well. And I feel like it ends on really the same note as take shelter does. Mm-hmm. It's like, it seems very dark and depressing and hopeless and yet somehow you get the sense that they're going to make it through like the ending uh and correct me if i'm if i'm mistaken i believe it it ends with they're having dinner and suddenly like the the through the credit sequence like it's playing kind of this happy music as they've put the kids to bed and they're cleaning up after dinner that's what it is yeah but yeah they've done the putting to bed the, like they've done that together then they've gone downstairs and it's like all right here let's let's put all this crap away mm-hmm. and as they're putting it away credits run and yes this surprisingly upbeat almost silly song yeah plays and somehow that that really spoke to me of just saying like this is what it's going to be like but this is life and it's uh, it's clearly not always going to be easy but it's it's okay. Like it's going to be all right. Yeah. And it's, and it speaks to something that I, that I'm, that I think Christians regularly talk about, um, which is the idea of happiness versus contentment. Mm -hmm. Happiness is, is almost all about your external circumstances. Um, and if those don't go just your way, you are unhappy. As opposed to contentment, which is you survey what you what is already there. You recognize that there is bad, but there is also good. And you are able to be okay with that. And chances are, when you are okay with that, you find a certain degree of peace and indeed contentment. And, you know, when you have, to go back to that, that actress who said, as long as things are fun, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be here. Um, well, that is that is a very much a function of happiness. She's basically saying, as long as I'm happy, as long as this guy I'm marrying doesn't do anything to make me unhappy for too long, then I'll, I'll be here. And uh, and then uh, C.S. Lewis talks about the idea of, uh, and I don't have this quote in front of me, but this idea of of like, oh, you know, I'm kind of sometimes I'm a little bored with my wife. I kind of feel like I get how it works and, uh, you know, and, you know, we argue sometimes it's just not, it's just not what it used to be. So I think I'm going to find somebody else. And then he says something like, what, what makes you think that's going to be any different? Yeah. You know? And so, um, 
And so uh, I do have an extended quote by Tim Keller in which he is uh, talking about uh, Soren Kierkegaard. So there's a sort of a double reference. So, um, and this is also from The Meaning of Marriage. We are now in a position to answer the question of how romantic love can be reconciled with marriage as unconditional commitment. Isn't romantic love something that must be completely free and uncoerced? And isn't it inevitable that intense desire for someone else simply can't be sustained, and therefore it is inevitable that we will need to seek another person who can reawaken the joy of love in us? Isn't it true that fully monogamous, lifelong marriage is the enemy of romantic affection? Soren Kierkegaard writes of three possible outlooks on life, what he calls the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious. He says that all of us are born aesthetes. Would you say that's how that's pronounced? I'd say aesthete. But aesthete? I think and you might be able to say it either okay. way. Well, that one's pluralized, and then there's a singular one later. Anyway, people, uh, whatever I say, it's people who think in t- mostly in terms of the aesthetic. Okay. Uh, he says that all of us are born aesthete. And we, we only can become ethical or religious through our choices. So what is the aesthete? The aesthete uh, doesn't really ask whether something is good or bad, but only whether it is interesting. Everything is judged as to whether it is fascinating, thrilling, exciting, and entertaining. The person dominated by the aesthetic sensibility is controlled by circumstances. If a wife loses her beautiful skin and countenance or a husband puts on the pounds, the aesthete begins to look around for someone more beautiful. If a spouse develops a debilitating illness, the aesthete begins to feel that life is pointless. But, says Kierkegaard, such a person is being completely controlled by external circumstances. The only way for you to truly, uh, to be truly free is to link your feeling to an obligation. Only if you commit yourself to loving in action, day in and day out, even when feelings and circumstances are in flux, can you truly be a free individual and not a pawn of outside forces. Also, only if you maintain your love for someone when it is not thrilling can you be said to be actually loving a person. The aesthete does not really love the person. He or she loves the feelings, thrills, ego rush, and experiences that the other person brings. The proof of that is that when those things are gone, the aesthete has no abiding care or concern for the other. Um, I really like that idea. I think it's, you know, it's it's something that I've, I've come to... Uh, to realize in my own marriage um, that like it's when you like when when the person is doing everything you like then it's very easy to say I love you yeah but you could just as easily say you're doing things I like (laughs) but if the person is not doing something you like and you say, I love you, even if you don't feel it, but you know it to be true, I love you. And it might, and by, by saying I love you, it might not even be a statement of fact. It might also be something of a promise that you're making. I love you, despite what's happening right now. I love you and I'm going to continue to love you. Um, then that, even though that person is not benefiting you in any way in that particular moment, and you still are able to acknowledge that you love them and that you are committed to loving them, like I would say that is a much truer love than the passionate romantic love that we often associate with the word. Um, and if you look at, you know, Take Shelter and, uh, and A Woman Under the Influence, we have people that are flawed and they don't always do the right thing, but they are committed to being there for the other person. Um, I will... Uh, I'll sum up with a couple of quotes. One from an unlikely source. The show Community 
which I like quite a bit. Uh, there's a character named Jeff Winger, played by Joel McHale, and a big deal is made of how attractive he is and uh, how he has a good body and that sort of thing. And he, there's a cockiness to him, and uh, he doesn't tend to uh, talk about his feelings. But there is a scene where he says, what if you're dishonest about why you're lonely? What if you're a good-looking guy who calls a phone sex line and tells them he weighs 400 pounds just so he can hear a woman tell him that she's attracted to him anyway? That's me. I did that last week because I'm scared that if I were overweight that no one would like me. Um, and I will uh, move into this other section here. <clears throat> So I want to make a, I just made a quick little list of all the times that my wife has been there for me. Not all the times, but like some of the big ones that have, uh, that have, uh, stuck out of my mind. Uh, I will not be listing the times when she was not there for me because I don't, I don't mean to imply that she was always there for me and I will not, and I will also not list all the times I was there for her because then that sounds self-congratulatory. And by the way, in doing so, I might wind up saying more about her than uh is appropriate so um just a real quick thing um she was there for me when i was 20 pounds lighter than i am and 30 pounds heavier than i am she was there when my friend willie died she was there for me when my grandpa died she was there when i started battleship pretension she was there for me when i started more than one lesson she was there for me and is there for me when I get negative criticism, of which, incidentally, I've gotten a lot lately, and she's always willing to listen to it. She's there when I get positive feedback. She's there when my boss gives me, griefs, uh, gives me grief. She's there for me when I'm in the depths of depression. She's there when I've gotten hired. She's there when I've gotten fired. She was there for me when I felt we had to move to California. She was there for me when I felt I had to quit Blockbuster and did not have another job lined up and wound up having like a year of unpaid internships. She was there for me when I have looked at porn and she was there for me when I hated myself for doing so. Um, and I will tell a story that up until recently was hush hush. I w we were not supposed to talk about it. And it it does very much play into Take Shelter. Jen and I recently went to go see The Avengers. By recently, I mean maybe like a month, month and a half ago. And I will, I will shorten the story. Uh, there are these three probably 14-year-old boys that were talking during the movie. They were climbing over seats because it was not a full theater and it was in the middle of the day. So they're climbing over seats. They were bothering people. Uh, Jen went to go get the manager and the minute she left they moved to a different part of the theater because they clearly knew that someone was going to complain about them so they were going to go hide the manager came and watched and uh, didn't see anything where they were because the manager nor neither the manager nor Jen knew that they had moved and uh, and so the manager stayed there for about five minutes trying to make sure everything was fine and then left and then the minute the manager left, the, uh, 14, the three 14-year-old boys just kept talking and all that, and it just kept going, and it was very bothersome. And then by the end of the film, uh, they were at the, they were on the ver in the very front row, and then it's right after the big hero shot of the Avengers when they're all, they're all standing there together for the first time, and it looks really awesome. Uh and then one of the kids stands up on his phone and says, hello? Yeah? Yeah, no, I'm in a movie. 
And then he sits back down. I don't know why he stood up except to maybe announce, hey, I'm a jerk to everyone in the theater. Look at me. Uh, but that was a bit too much for me. And so I stood up and I was going to go to the front and say, hey, seriously, be quiet. That was the plan. Here's what happened. I walked down and I was already a little nervous and on edge and I was angry. I get to them and all three of them are on their phone. And there was something about that. One of them, I don't know, like the whole, everything they did bothered me, but there was something about arriving there and seeing that all three of them were on their phone that just, I snapped and in the middle of a public place, I screamed, I would say at the top of my lungs, shut the F up or leave. The kids were understandably frightened. Uh, and then immediately I saw Jen pop up in the back of the theater and leave because uh, I think she was worried. Um, and then I stormed out. And uh, so I went home. Uh, so we left and Jen was, she said she was embarrassed, but she was also worried that we would get in trouble. <laughs> um, but, and she was just, she was a little rattled and it's not every day you see your spouse freak out in public at children uh, at children 14 i'm not sure if i count them as children oh i have to i have to not count them as children for this to for to be able to sleep at night uh and so we got home and i was apologetic uh you know the whole time we were driving jen she was upset but she was calming down and then by the end i was just so upset with myself and she had calmed down and then she told me that it was okay that it was all right it's not the end of the world you're never gonna see those people again and i and i started to calm down because yeah hey theater full of strangers then i get a text from a friend saying (laughs) hey good job yelling at those kids (laughs) and i had an absolute meltdown in that moment because here's the thing Here's the thing. This friend of mine is not a Christian, and I try to be a good person. I try to be a good example of a Christian when I'm around this person. Uh, and in that moment... Not just when you're around this person. It's not like you have a, fa- a fake Christian face you got to put on when you're around this person. It's just... Right. But, like, it's... You know, I try to... Yeah, I'm not sure. I guess I'm, I try to put my best foot forward, I guess, when I'm around yeah. really any non-Christians. Because yeah, I, I think that's something a lot of Christians try and, yeah. try and do. Not to say that, like, when we all get together, we're just it's just yeah. prostitutes and drugs yeah, all day it's, long. Uh, it's uh, Caligula. Yeah. But um, it's just to say that, like, we're oftentimes conscious that, like, around non-Christians, we, we need to be careful that we are presenting Christ. Yeah. Um, which is something that we should be doing all the time, but I think... Yeah. Uh, Sometimes you can rely on a little bit more grace from other Christians, or at yeah. least you can connect on that level. Well, it's also, when you think about it, like, who are you with your family, and who are you with other people? Yeah. Now, you'll probably be mostly the same person, but you may find you can be a bit more casual with your family, because you have a thing in common that bonds you together, whereas you don't have that with that other person, even if you're incredibly close with that person, as I am with this person that texted me. Um but the minute I got that text, then I just totally flipped out because I was like, you know, I take and I was and I started to like cry and I was like, I take all this time to be a good a good example and try to try to do well 
and do right by this person and then it goes away completely in one fell swoop and Jen who was previously like kind of embarrassed that I had done that she like put her arm around me and said it's n- he's probably not freaked out he you're he's probably not being like oh those Christians you know or anything <laughs> like that uh, it's it's fine you're you're gonna be fine and so so I did have so upon watching Take Shelter uh, a second time, which I did last night, and I watched it with my wife. She specifically said that that scene where Curtis flips out in public, she's like, "I my mind immediately went to the movie theater," and I was like, "Yeah, mine too." <laughs> um, but uh, but she was, you know, she was there for me she wasn't furious at me the rest of the day she uh you know we we don't talk much about it because i feel like it is a uh it doesn't make me look very good um but and and i asked her it's like hey is it okay if i tell this story on the show and she said it was fine and so so like that's another example actually a rather direct correlate uh, uh not correlation parallel between me and the character of uh, of curtis but also you know uh, for a long time, I was dealing with depression, and uh, and that made me not, and I still am, but not to the degree I was, uh, and that made me not a very good person to be around, and I'm sure I took and took, and she just gave, uh, and there were times when, of course, she didn't have anything left to give, and that's that's okay that'll happen but she was willing to give even though i mean she specifically said you are not you like you don't seem like yourself but nonetheless because she had made that commitment to me she stuck with me and that means you know so much to me um so i have a a last little passage to read here but I'll, i'll hold off for a moment and say if there's anything you'd like to contribute, if not, that's perfectly fine. You've not been married very long. I have to assume everything's been fine. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the the first part of marriage is always the easiest. You know, you just kind of relax. And it's like one of those one of those rides at the, uh, not rides, but at like a, like a water park when there's like a lazy river. Sure. It's just like that. It's just that. Yeah. Kick back. Just let in it In a happen. mixture of chlorinated water and urine. I'm sure urine yeah yeah and just just enjoy this has become a metaphor that even I don't understand yeah that took a turn uh, but yes if if you wanted to contribute anything that's fine if not I will uh, I will end on a certain note well, I, I think it's okay if you wrap up okay all right so this is another quote from uh, Tim Keller the meaning of marriage and then I will comment on this briefly many people hear this and say and when he says hear this he's talking about all the stuff that i've been talking about uh making a commitment to somebody and even if you don't feel it many people hear this and say i'm sorry i can't give love if i don't feel it i can't fake it that's too mechanical for me i can understand that reaction but paul simply doesn't call us to a naked action he also commands us to think as we act husbands love your wives just as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her this means we must say to ourselves something like this Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony, and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. Uh, 
He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. Um, and I will say that, uh, that you know, uh, the Bible regularly compares our relationship to Jesus to a husband and wife. Um, and it says that, you know, uh, wives should submit to their husbands and husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. But before that, it also says we should submit to one another. Um, and so, but, th- but even then, like just throughout the whole Bible, it says we have to try to be Christ-like. We need to be like Christ. And in that sense, Christ loved us when we were at our most unlovable. Um, I like that image. I hadn't really thought about it before, but he, you know, the disciples were in various uh, stages of saying, I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> I don't want to die, and I certainly don't want to die like that. And they were doubting. They were, and they were just distancing themselves as much as possible. They, there was almost no loyalty there. There were some, with some of them, but like with even, you know, the strongest ones, the loyalty went away in favor of themselves. And, and like, that's what he saw when he looked down. And so the idea of like, but he didn't say, Oh, okay. So I'm doing this and they, I'm doing this for them and they couldn't, they can't run away fast enough. You know what? Screw this. I'm leaving. Yeah. Uh, he didn't say that instead. Instead he saw their selfishness and their, uh, their instinct for self-preservation and he saw that and said that is exactly why they need my love and why I am sacrificing myself and in that same sense like you know there are going to be times when our spouses are incredibly unlovable and we might and our instincts are you know what where we would naturally go is to be like, if they're unlovable, I can't love them. So it's time for me to walk away. I can't deal with this. But if we are following the example of Christ, then it is precisely when our spouse is at their most unlovable that they most need our love. Um, even if they're not giving anything back, like if a character, if a, if our spouse is a paranoid schizophrenic or a possible manic depressive, like, you know, they need our love and support even when we don't feel it and we're not always going to be perfect in that but you know yeah so that's still that's still something that we can sacrifice to give to them and like like you said those are the times when they'll need us the most uh so there are a few books that i would like to recommend uh for anybody who's interested i mentioned one already it's called the love dare i believe that's written by alex kendrick the guy that that directed uh wrote and directed fireproof uh i've already quoted uh quite a bit from the meaning of marriage by tim keller with kathy keller there is a book that uh both josh and i have read called the marriage builder by larry crab i will uh stipulate Larry Crabb is a mari- is a Christian marriage counselor, and I think a lot of his advice is good. But I think it probably is it's the kind of advice that it seems better when spoken. Mm-hmm. When it's r- just written down, it I found it to be at times like very unrelenting and uh, like it 
it the book depressed me at times because yeah. I felt like I I could never be what this book needed me to be. I kind of felt the same way in reading it. So, but I think that is a function of his style. Yeah, I think the content is is good, and sometimes yeah. you just have to. <laughs> It's, if you read some of it, and then it's good to to have someone that you can talk talk with about it, yeah. uh, just to sort of almost repeat those things in your own words and kind of get those ideas through without feeling browbeaten, maybe. Yeah. So if you're able, if you think you're able to push past the uh, the style and and just get to the content, then uh, the Marriage Builder by Larry Crabb is very very interesting. Uh, and then there's another book that uh, is maybe not quite as hard-hitting, but I think it's it's a good read. It's called The Mystery of Marriage. It's by Mike Mason. It's a very good book. My wife and I read it uh, as we were getting ready to be married, and I think it I think it teaches some good some good lessons. Uh, and it's I I'd say maybe that's a good one for people that are uh, have either just gotten married or are thinking of getting married. So, um. Okay, hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed this episode. I hope you, uh, for those that haven't seen Take Shelter, and it's surprising to me that people listen to this without having seen the film, but whatever, you're out there. So uh, hopefully you will take the time to go see Take Shelter and seek out a woman under the influence. It's it's hard, but it's worth your time. Not those, unlike marriage itself. Those honestly would be a good two to watch, like, back-to-back. Maybe not in the same night, but maybe one <laughs> night after the other. It'd be a lot for one night. Yeah. Um, you, but you're going to sleep like a baby after that. <laughs> I do like the idea of being able to do double features, uh, even if you got to separate them out by a day. But but uh, uh, one of my favorite things to do is kind of compare and contrast films, and I think those mm-hmm. are two that really go, to what, go together well for a compare-contrast. Yeah. So, uh, all right. You can go to morethanonelesson.com. As I mentioned, uh, there is a, a new sermon recommendation up right now. There is a uh, uh, there's a link to the very nice review that uh, Bill Thompson at Bill's Movie Emporium wrote about us. Uh, let's see. I think that is about it. You can, uh, By the way, I don't talk about this very often, but you can always go to the uh, More Than One Lesson DVD and Blu-ray store. Uh, any movie that we talk about favorably on the show is available there to purchase. So you can go and buy Take Shelter there if you like. Um, and I think I have A Woman Under the Influence there somewhere. But, uh, but yeah, any movie that we've talked about, you can go and, and you can get there. And there's a link to that uh, on the page. So, and pretty soon you will also be able to order for the title there as well. That's my, right. Uh, my debut film. Josh's, uh, Josh's opus. Yeah. Winner of some awards. Some awards. Some yeah. awards or something. Right? Yes. Yeah, there you go. People's Choice Award, Southern Fried Flicks Film Festival. That's right. 2006. All right. So, yeah. That was six years ago. Yeah, and and Josh, you are in it. I'm in it as well. People can see a young young buck. What was that? See and hear. See and hear. And uh, if you're anything like me, just just be like, he's just as bad as I thought. Not yeah. not an acting, just the whole thing, just the whole package. Absolutely, but uh, but yeah, that that will be happening soon. I will make an announcement on the Facebook page and on Twitter uh, when when we put that up for sale. It'll be it will be ten dollars payable through PayPal. So okay, and speaking of that Facebook and Twitter, uh, I do not have the Facebook page or group in front of me, but you can click on the link on the More Than One Lesson homepage, which is at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can email Josh, josh at morethanonelesson.com. 
You can follow me on Twitter. That's at More Lessons. And you can follow our buddy Josh. At the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. And I did want to say real quick, uh, keep an eye out. It's probably not going to be for a few weeks, but... Josh's uh, web series, The Unemployed Mind, is going to be available online sometime in the next month. Hopefully, and uh, hopefully before that we'll have the website up and you'll be able to see any of you who have uh, donated some things from Kickstarter. We'll have a couple special little things for you. Um, a couple people who donated to Kickstarter have uh, inspired some little videos that all of you will get to enjoy. There you go. And uh, things of that nature. So there's definitely a lot of stuff to look forward to there. Absolutely. And we'll, and we'll keep you posted as, as more stuff goes up. So I don't yet know what the next episode is going to be. So I don't know what to tell you to watch. But uh, yeah, I will try to keep you posted as we make that decision. So all right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Josh, as always, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. And I'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.